If you're a pop culture junkie who loves TV, film, music, comedy, and other really important stuff, then you've come to the right place. Get ready and settle in for Classic Conversations, the best pop culture interviews in the world. That's right, we circled the globe so you don't have to. If you're ready to be the king of the water cooler, then you're ready for Classic Conversations with your host, Jeff Dwoskin. All right, Joanne, thank you so much for that amazing introduction. You get the show going each and every week, and this week was no exception. Welcome, everybody, to episode 190 of Classic Conversations. As always, I am your host, Jeff Dwoskin. Great to have you back for another classic edition of the podcast. We got an amazing guest for you today, actor, producer, funny man. He was the co-owner of the legendary improv comedy club. Mark Lano is here. Loved him in The Wedding Singer. Thank God it's Friday. First and 10 and so much more. And that conversation's coming up in just a few seconds. And in these few seconds, I want to shine a light on the red carpet of last week's episode with Melissa Rivers. Amazing interview with Melissa. Do not miss that. Do not miss the bonus episode that covered segments from our live show, Crossing the Streams. TV binge-watching goodness awaits you. But before you get to all that, Mark Leno is here. One item of note before listening to the podcast, Mark was the co-owner of the legendary Improv Comedy Club. His partner, Bud Friedman in the Improv, passed away about a month ago. That is not mentioned in the interview because the interview took place prior to Bud's passing. So just wanted everyone to know that. That's why that's not mentioned. But in the meantime, there is a lot mentioned. For point of reference, I dive right into some Thank God It's Friday references. Enjoy. All right, everyone, I'm excited to introduce you to my next guest, actor, producer, funny man, co-owner of the legendary improv comedy club, loved him in wedding, singer, thank God it's Friday, Archie Bunker's Place, and a million others. Welcome to the show, Baba Gazoo, Mark Lano. 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 <laughs> there you go, see? You got it. You have to sing it. You have to sing my name. As if it's meaningful. It is. <laughs> uh, so you're the man that made wearing a tie all around his head. Around my head. That was a long time ago. I know, but that was uh, the height of the disco era. Yes. Commodores on a summer, Lionel Richie. It was fun. A young Jeff Goldblum. A young career. Jeff Goldblum, a young Mark Lano, or young, a lot of people. Deborah Winger's first Deborah movie. Winger, yes. Who actually was a waitress at the Improv. And she was shooting that. So I was the owner of the improv. She was a waitress. We were both in the same movie. That's a little piece of totally useless information. My favorite information (laughs) is totally useless information. (laughs) See? It's good. It shows you how in you are. Yeah. So it's, uh, but the movie did win an Academy Award for Best Song, Last Dance, Donna Summer. Yes, it did. This is where it comes from. Thank God it's Friday. Jeff Goldblum hasn't changed an ounce. At all. He hasn't changed at all. He hasn't changed his speech pattern, hasn't changed his height, just hasn't changed. People talk about Paul Rudd, but I mean, I'm like, I was watching, I was watching the movie and I was just like, Jeff Goldblum hasn't changed a bit. Oh man. No, you can watch him on commercials now. I know. And it's the same Jeff. Get a little apartment. Oh man! So you mentioned you, you own the improv. You're an actor. You've done you've done a lot. You, should we let's should we start? Let's start with what got you into acting. What kind of led you down that path? 
A lot of, well, as a kid, I was born in um, South Brooklyn, Brighton Beach, Coney Island, Brighton Beach, except if you uh, ever saw the movie Little Odessa. That's, uh, that's the neighborhood, the exact neighborhood. I just wanted to get out. And my only way out was uh, through the theater. As early as I could, I started taking acting classes. I went to summer stock and started doing legit theater all over the place. Wound up in an improv group with my wife. That was after I left Brooklyn. The improv group was uh, became pretty pretty well known in the East. We opened for uh, Frankie Valley in the Four Seasons. We opened for Maynard Ferguson, worked the Bottom Line, Grandma Minnie's, all over the East. Then we moved to California, where I then got into Thank God It's Friday, Husbands, Wives, and Lovers, which was a sitcom written by Joan Rivers and Hal Dresner. Did a ton of television, as you said, Archie's Place and all kinds of stuff. And and I bought the improvisation. And then I uh, lay back and just ate cake. And <laughs> all right, well, let's fill in some more details in that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, sure. Let's take Why that not? outline and fill in. So, all right. So you mentioned the improv group off the wall. Right. And you did that with a then perhaps unknown Henry Winkler. That is correct. And so you knew him pre-Fonz. Yeah. Oh, well, wait, pre-Fonz. Yes. Okay. All right. So you did all that. And then did you do comedy? Did the improv, did you do stand up at any point? Like, you know, because eventually I, I you became synonymous with uh, per se. No, I didn't do stand up per se. I just, uh, I bought the club. However, group boiled down. We were, started out as six Members, we boiled down to three members. And then when we went out on the road, we did comedy clubs. So we were following in the footsteps of the comics who then worked the improv. Well, actually, they worked the improv while I was still in the group. So, yes, I did stand up in a roundabout way, but it was in an improv group. Got it. So acting wise, when you went out to L.A., you, you kind of had one of those stories where you kept getting stuff right away. You were in All in the Family. Later, you went, you were a recurring role in Archie Bunker's Place, but All in the Family is one of your early credits. Mm-hmm. And then you had Husbands and Wives, which you mentioned, which was uh, the Joan Rivers sitcom. A- and you landed a movie at the same time. Thank God it's Friday, which... Correct. Within within weeks. Although we didn't... Uh, the shoots didn't actually fall that way. Within... Well, the first day I arrived in Los Angeles in Hollywood, I met the fa- agent for the first time and he sent me out on a show called Spencer's Pilot. And I was really nervous, although I had been performing for years. I had never done television or movies. This was a whole new ball game, And I was really nervous. And in the audition scene, which I hadn't seen before, I had to pick up a phone. I had to make notes on a pad and I had to talk. I was a doctor and I had to talk about the emergency that I then had to go deal with. So I had the pencil in my hand, one hand, my notepad in the other. Phone rings. I pick up the phone with the hand with the pencil. I bring the phone to my face and the pencil went up my nose, literally up my nose. Humiliated. I am at, oh, could I do that again? They're all breaking up. Yes, of course, you know, boom, I do it again. Thank you very much. And I leave and I go and I meet my wife and I go, I, this is, I am so embarrassed. I am quitting show business. This is what I say to her. She said, what are you talking about? I said, I was so anxious. Look, if I can't do an audition, I get that. I, I'm, I'm in the wrong business. This is ridiculous. And as I'm saying this to her, 
Phone rings, pick it up, and it's the agent telling me I got the job. So literally within the first 24 hours of my being in Hollywood, I started working. And then I didn't stop for the next eight years, five, yeah, eight, nine years. Yeah, you were, you were a powerhouse during the, the 70s and the 80s. In that week. <laughs> you had a good week, a really good, solid, solid week. I, you know, it's funny. I've I've talked to other people that have, where they tell a story where they something accidentally happened. Like Sharon Glass tells a story where she had to run out and she hadn't changed yet and she, everyone's laughing, but it wasn't intentional. And then that, the right person was in the audience and then boom, that was it. So it seems like sometimes these things that kind of just happen. Well, yeah, because a lot of a lot of what is going on in the room is the personalities are meeting. Because often, unless you've worked before with the people, they don't know you, you don't really know them, you might have heard of them or what. And so it's really, is there a simpatico between you, director, the cinematographer, whoever's there, the writer. And sometimes in the inadvertent screw up, they see something they like, and then you get the job. And obviously, they thought my nose was a, it was cute. <laughs> <laughs> no one shoves a pencil up their nose like Mark. No, no one does that. Um, so it was the first. It was a first. <laughs> uh, but yeah, you did a lot of, I mean, you did like a hoot. Oh, you know what? You were in uh, Mr. Saturday Night. Yes, that's correct. And I was in First in Ten. First in Ten, yes. Did I did that series. Yeah, you were in a lot uh, of a lot of episodes, a whole sixteen episodes of first and tens. Yeah. What else? You got Hill Street Blues, Falcon Crest, Moonlighting, Fantasy Island. You got to go to Fantasy Island. Fantasy Island was interesting because I was playing Gary Opremian. And I don't know if you know Gary Opremian. He was a kicker and he kicked barefoot. And I trying to be a method actor, decided to kick the ball. I didn't go for barefoot, but I decided to kick. And, you know, the director looked at me and goes, okay, because there wasn't an in-cut. There wasn't an insert. There was no. And so I kept practicing and I kept practicing and I kicked the ball and I got it over the goalpost. I did it. And the next day I couldn't walk. The difficulty, a kicker, really, that is really difficult. It is painful and it is difficult. Anyway. So much for a relaxing trip to Fantasy Island. (laughs) How was Carol O'Connor to work with? You worked with him on... Once on all the family. family. They were all, that was a delightful company. Everybody was relaxed. You know, I still bump into Rob Reiner every once in a while. And I'm amazed he remembered me. You kind of think, what was there? I was there a week. You know, the show ran forever, whatever, eight eight years. Mm -hmm. No, more than that, maybe. And really open, sweet, welcoming. It was a very, it was a really good set. Sometimes they're not so good. You know, the anxiety, the competition, the animosity between people. Spill the tea. What was your worst? Was what? <laughs> Spill the tea. The what worst? Was, what was the worst one you've ever, you had to guest on? Well, no, there was a guy who passed away, actually, Charlie Siebert, who I think he might have been a little bit, I don't even know if I should mention names. He was, I think he was jealous because I was getting a lot of work and stuff. So God forbid I would go up on a line or I would, and this wasn't in front of a live audience. This was, you know, this was a pre-taped show. No house, dead, dead audience. So every time I would go, every time, I mean, we're not talking about every line. Every, once in a while, he would go, can't you learn your lines? You know, and you're going to go, ooh. 
So, yeah, so that was uh, very upsetting. But most of the time, everybody's nice, especially if you're a guest star. And especially if you're working with really for people who have been around the business a long time. Uh, I was with Harvey Corman in the Harvey Corman show. I was a guest star, came in for a week. He asked me if I wanted to become a regular on the show. I said yes, and he quit. <laughs> Two weeks later, we were in negotiation oh. for, for putting me, for inserting my character in the show on a regular basis, and Harvey decided to quit. Yeah, <laughs> timing's everything, huh? <laughs> That's a real show business story. That's a harsh one. Quit, and then they turn the stage down. Mm. <laughs> Oh man, why did he quit? Oh, I, you know, Harvey was a was an odd man. I I once had dinner. My wife and I once had dinner with him, and it you know we're laughing and we're and all of a sudden Harvey gets really serious, and we look and go, "Is there something wrong, Harvey?" He said, "No, no, Mark, there's nothing wrong." But I was thinking, where there's food, there's life. Okay, Harvey, and where does the conversation go from there? So, yes, the oddness prevails sometimes. Sorry to interrupt. Have to take a quick break. I want to thank everyone for their support of the sponsors. When you support the sponsors, you're supporting us here at Classic Conversations, and that's how we keep the lights on. And now back to my amazing conversation with Mark Lano. We're about to dive into his guest role on Quantum Leap, and we're back. Oh, so another show you were on, Quantum Leap, and but this was a, it was a stand up episode. It was called Stand Up. And That's that, correct. Bob Saget was one of the uh, comedy acts that did the show, right? That did the show, and you were the club manager. Correct. I wonder where they got that idea, be, making me a club manager. <laughs> <laughs> I just thought that was fun. That it was. Uh, kind of themed that way. Oh, let's talk Wedding Singer for a second, because you're hilarious in The Wedding Singer. <laughs> so funny. I read that. Did that come about? You had worked with Adam Sandler at the Improv. You had given him a Well, a Adam Sandler worked for me. That's what I mean. Like you That's worked when I own right. Yeah. Right. I own the club. And we weren't close friends, but we were we were friends. And he just one day called out of the blue. I did not audition for the show. You know, I was deep into being a, a club owner. I go, hey, hey, Mark. Hey, Adam, what's going on? You want to be in a movie? Yeah, why not? Good. Show up Monday, gives me the address, gives me the stage, and I'm in the movie. I mean, that's literally how it happened. I didn't read it. I didn't pick up a page. I did nothing. <laughs> and I, but it was a fun shoot. That was really great. That was really fun. And you got to uh, kind of continue your fashion icon status from the, the tie around the head. This was like a full white tux with the red bow tie and, and cummerbund. Yeah, it was like a mafioso kind of guy. I ate peanuts and beat the shit out of Adam. <laughs> yeah, you got to cry. You're the worst wedding singer in the world, buddy. <laughs> it's funny because I think like everyone remembers that character because that's like an important scene. Like that's like when you pop them. That's and then, right. Like, and they also used it as the promotion for the movie. Right, right, right. So you're like you're like one of those the small scene, but everyone everyone knows. Everybody knows you're in the wedding singer. Uh, and you know how many times I walk into a restaurant and people to this day, have I ever seen you before? I don't I don't think so. Yeah, you were in the wedding singer, man. You were really good, you know. <laughs> Funny. Oh, uh, man. I saw Adam Sandler do stand-up once in college in Ann Arbor. I mean, I've seen all his movies, too, but actually, I actually saw him do stand-up as well. So, all right, you mentioned your wife a couple of times, Joanne Astro, who's a very established comic. She was a comic. She was on yes. The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. With Johnny Carson. And she got a really good stuff. 
really good stuff, Joanne, on The Tonight Show. 1987, I think, with uh, George C. George C. Scott. It's on YouTube. It's like one of the most watched episodes of Carson on YouTube. Boom. And then, oh, and so as I was kind of digging into your family, because everyone seems to be famous in your family, <laughs> your daughter, yes. who's done a lot, has done a lot, but very specifically, just to hone in on one particular thing, wrote a sitcom that was based on you and Joanne, and I guess her as well, right? How to Live. Wrote a, oh, you had to live with your parents for the rest of your life. Yeah. There was a more interesting story about my stepdaughter, okay? Sure. So I did this sitcom created by Joan Rivers. It was the first hour, and I think the only ever hour sitcom on television. Got great reviews. We had we had a good audience, and it got canceled because it was too expensive. It was too long. You know, a lot of business decisions. And the man who created Knott's Landing was Jacobs. I don't remember what his first name was. Anyway, he pitched the idea of Knott's Landing years before. And no one picked up on it. And he did Dallas. And he did Dynasty. And he was this big, huge nighttime soap opera guy. And he said, I have an idea. I saw a sitcom called Husbands, Wives, and Lovers. And I want to make that into Knott's Landing. He did. He hired my daughter. She ran nine years on the show. We ran a season. <laughs> so that, that's the kid Eating the shit out of her father. Well, sometimes the, as a parent, you you give so that your children. Can I was thrive. proud and <laughs> jealous. <laughs> every time, every time we are on set, and she's like, "You're always like, what? You can't remember your lines?" <laughs> oh, good, very good. That's right. <laughs> your stepson is Michael Rappaport. Well, not my stepson. Michael Rappaport is the half uh, sibling of Claudia, my stepdaughter. Okay. And Michael had a uh, problem in school as a kid. And he came to visit his sister in Hollywood. And he came and he showed up in white leather tassels, bling, and he wanted to be a basketball player. And he seemed to like it. And, uh, and Fairfax High had a great basketball team. And he went back to New York, spoke to his father. I, we got a call. Can Michael come out and live with you? during high school because he's having trouble in school. He gets thrown out of a lot of schools and he came out. He lived with us and to high school, didn't graduate from Fairfax because he moved back to New York, came back and started to get up on stage as a terrible comic, terrible. And you know, I, I keep putting him up and comics would go over, Mark, what are you doing? I said, please, you know, he's he, he's my surrogate son. He's always part of the, I can't, guys, I can't. He's wasting. And after a while, he learned how to do it. And he's now a pretty good comic, to say the least. And he got, he got China Beach from going on stage. He was in his terrible time. The, uh, the casting director came in with his son, and the son said, Dad, that guy is really good. And the casting director called Michael in and he got China Beach. So that was just because he got on stage and was terrible. And because you were kind and took him in and gave him a chance. That's awesome. Uh, yes, right. I gave him a chance as if I wanted to. <laughs> the, uh, well, you're, you're a mensch. You're a real mensch. And he's friends with a friend of mine, Mike Young, and he's been in a few of Mike's Mike Young's uh, movies. So anyway, so that's cool. So I, I thought that was neat. But back to where I started with, with your daughter. So 
It's still cool, though. <laughs> I know you, you trumped it with the Nods Landing story, but how to live with your parents. So for her to create an entire sitcom based on you guys, that must have been that must have been pretty cool, too. I mean, that's uh, that was that was pretty cool. Yes. Dad Garrett asked me if I had any notes for him as to how to play me. And I said, yeah, play me on your knees. I'm much shorter than you are, Gav. And he's like 6'3", 6'4", I am not. I'm like 5'9", you know. But yeah, that was great. But my daughter's uh, first sitcom was about her too, Rude Awakening, which really started her on her writing career, which was ran for a long time, eight years, nine years. Oh, wow. That is so cool. All right. So then, and then your wife and I, you, your wife and I, your wife and I, no, you're, you and your wife. <laughs> well, I, you know, I don't know. She has dated other people, many people. <laughs> Still quick stories about your wife and I. No, they, um, so you and your wife, you manage comics as well, Lewis Black. Yes, it was my wife's uh, management business, which I, I joined. And everybody from uh, Nisi Nash to Lewis. What was his name? Lewis White? No, Lewis Black. Lewis Black, yeah. <laughs> Lewis Black, yes. It was a rather successful uh, management company. Excellent. She has good taste, my wife, <laughs> because she picked as a husband. Yeah, yeah. of course, of course. <laughs> so let's let's talk about the improv. How did it happen that you bought into the improv and became partners with Bud Friedman? Well, um, okay, so uh, Bud Friedman, the man who founded the improv in New York, he had uh, his his real talent was letting anyone get on the stage who walked in the door. And haphazardly, it wound up, it started out on 44th Street as a nightclub where uh, Broadway stars would come in and work out acts. Opened at 10 o'clock at night. Um, they would come in after the show. And so it was a late night room. They would do uh, mostly songs. It was Broadway singers. So they would. Um, they would sing, they would do entertainment, Judy Garland. I mean, really big stars. And one night, a comic walked in and asked if he can go on. And Bud said yes. And the comic did really well. And the next day, Bud showed up to open the room, like at 6 o'clock, 5 o'clock. And there was a line of like 40 comics outside. So he goes, what, what are you guys doing here? Well, our friend called us last night and said it's a room we can get on stage. Oh, okay. What I can't put you all on stage. So he started putting on a comic every once in a while. So it would be a, a comic, four singers, a comic. But the comics kept coming back. So it went from a comic, four singers, and a comic, to a comic, three singers, to a comic, two singers, a comic, comic, comic. Then it was a four comics and a singer. And that's how Club started. But he always had a desire to be in Hollywood. So he hired, he partnered with Chris Albrecht. Do you know who Chris Albrecht is? No. He was the president of HBO. Oh, HBO, okay. Okay, he came. And Chris, so Bud went in, to LA and bought the Ash Grove in Hollywood and opened the second improv, leaving Chris in New York. But Chris made the New York club this little after hours kind of singers comic club into this powerhouse stand-up comedy room in New York. And it really supported Hollywood Club. Bud then got divorced and gave the New York Club to his wife. And Chris couldn't work with her. And Chris, because then we, we had worked as the as off the wall 
in the New York club. Chris calls me one day and says, look, Bud can't make it without the money from New York. He's not going to be able to keep the club open in Hollywood. You want to buy him out. Oh, well, yeah, okay. So we entered into a negotiation, which literally went on forever. And one day, Bud comes over to me and says, I don't really want to sell. Really, Bud? I wouldn't have known that. It's been nine months. But I do want you as my partner. And so I spoke to Chris. Chris said, fine with me. And I bought into the club. I bought half the club and uh, then became a, a, a nightclub owner. So quick question. Why did he call you? Like, I mean, like you're an actor, you're acting, you're doing this. What was it that he thought, oh, I bet Mark would be interested in this business opportunity. Because I'm a, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a very good businessman. Now, let me, I'll just explain to you. Bob on in Hollywood was just barely, it wasn't making it. But within six months, I changed everything. I, I put sliding doors in the front walls so it was open to the street. I put skylights in. I brought music into the front room. It's, it's set up in two rooms. I brought music into the front room. I made a party. It was I converted this dinky, dingy, dark nightclub. You know, Bob, Robert Klein once said but about the improv in Hollywood. He said, but has successfully brought New York club to Hollywood. It's the only club in Hollywood where you have to put a paper towel around the doorknob and you enter the bathroom. that's that's the kind of club and then it became i mean we did unbelievable business and then of course we got the evening at the improv which then took us to you know a a nationwide chain so i I had a a pension for building business for knowing how to run businesses actually the reason we wound up at the improv in new york in off the wall is we had started a nightclub in essence, in the Riviera Cafe on Christopher Street and 7th Avenue, downtown in the village, where we took the back room and converted it into a theater. Well, I just walked in one day and I said that. So then Chris heard about that, guided us up to work the improv. And so I had a reputation for being a good businessman. Clearly. Yeah, I just was curious. You know, I was just, well, I was, it's, you know, just, you mentioned a comedian. The first comedian was David Astor. That's correct. And I looked him up. I mean, most people are like, oh, you're on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. But he was on The Tonight Show with Jack Parr. <laughs> he was also on. <laughs> That's a little earlier. Yeah, yeah, he goes back even, he was on with Johnny Carson as well. He was on the Jack Parr iteration, the one before Johnny. And then uh, he was also on Ed Sullivan. Where was he in that journey? With how much of that was behind him or in front of him when he did that comedy? It was behind him. When he got on the improv in New York, he was still not in the middle, but, you know, 80% through with his career. Okay. He was a mountains comic. You know, he was a club comic. He only, he only could have gotten on earlier than Jack Barr as if he did it with Steve Allen, <laughs> <laughs> who started The Tonight Show. Right. Anyway. Sorry to interrupt, but we have to take a quick break. And we're back with my amazing conversation with Mark Lano. We're going to dive even further into the improv. And we're back. Is the improv then considered like the birth of stand-up comedy? This It's not the birth of stand-up comedy, but it is the first stand-up comedy nightclub in the world. It was never such a thing. Nightclubs were always a little on the elegant side. I mean, there were a couple of um, experimental clubs in the village where they would do poetry, they would do readings, they would do, you know, some stand-up. But the first 
comedy, the first nightclub dedicated to stand-up comedy was the improv. And then the evening at the improv was really what exploded comedy on television. So we ran 11 years. Oh, I remember Evening at the Improv. I, I'm pretty sure I have Evening on the Improv on like uh, either DVD or like something like that. Oh, I'm sh- oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, I'm I'm pretty sure I've got like a whole thing of those. It, I was look, I was trying to find them before the show, and I just you can never find something when you're actually looking for it. <laughs> of course. Now, what would be the purpose of actually finding things? You'd have nothing to complain about, and that would not be a way to live life. That's true. You got to being able to complain is what keeps us going. It is what generates anxiety. It generates all those emotions that keep the heart beating. Absolutely. Absolutely. (laughs) Let's talk about some of the big names. Rodney Dangerfield improvs part-time MC for many years. Does that sound right? Rodney Dangerfield. No. Okay. So here's the thing. Okay. Well, I did some of this. I got off the improv website. All right. Let's talk about Rodney Dangerfield. (laughs) Yeah, well, I knew Rodney, not from the improv, but from a a club in Brooklyn called Pips. Uh, There was a a comic named George Schultz who really didn't like when the act didn't work. He was really a good comic. And his two best friends were Rodney Dangerfield, before Rodney was Rodney. And actually, George gave Rodney, I don't get no respect. I'll finish that story in a second. So he had two best friends, Lenny Bruce and Rodney Dangerfield. So I, when, I, when I went to work at Pips, a friend of mine, Phil Messina, um, a director, a movie director, was waiting tables there. He said, Mark, if you need some money, come on over. So we worked, we worked the room as waiters and managers and whatever. And Ro- jo- Joan Rivers would come in, breaking in her act. Edgar, oh, she'd wow. come in every Thursday, Friday, and Saturday for weeks, just before she went to Vegas. Rodney would come in. Before, well, before he had, I don't get no respect, George gave him that line. And 20 years later, George and Rodney went to, Rodney had an interview on radio, and he asked Rodney, he had you come up with, I don't get no respect. He said, hey, you know, I just kind of, you know, I just thought of it. George is sitting outside. George is the guy who gave him the catchphrase. Rodney, you couldn't give me the credit? What, what's it going to bother you? And they had an argument and they stopped talking to each other. And that was, but anyway, so that was Rodney. But then when I, we came to, when I came to Hollywood, Rodney was one of the people I would talk to. He would come into the improv all the time in his bathrobe with a bottle of water in the bathrobe, which was not actually water. <laughs> <laughs> Mark, you're like the only person I know who talks about Rodney Dangerfield and doesn't do his voice. Like most... <laughs> No, no, I can't do Rodney's. <laughs> Everyone voice. always does that. I'd have to be stoned. I tell you, you know? I tell you, everyone's even bad. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you mentioned Lenny Bruce, and did you see Lenny Bruce? Did you live? I saw him once in the village. I don't even remember where it was, but that was, you know, I'm not that old, so I was, I was really young. But I went to, a, I went to a club and I saw Lenny. But all right, just curious. <laughs> I've only seen him on Marvelous Miss Maisel. <laughs> <laughs> That's uh, almost, almost. Oh, Kitty Bruce, his daughter, was the hat check girl at the Improv on 44th Street. Now, Kitty, I knew. Ah. Lenny, I, you know, I just, Lenny. Lenny, Lenny, Lenny. I knew the plastic surgeon who worked on Lenny's mother. <laughs> <laughs> what other 
comedy greats do you have stories on that walked in? I could just rattle off some names. You mentioned Robert well, Klein. You know, we used to the uh, when we did evening at the improv, we had every week we had another one coming in, and one and the Milton Berle. And we, there was a round table at the improv, which was in the restaurant area, which was separate from the showroom. And, you know, during the afternoon, after rehearsal, after we did a run through, we gather around there, maybe half a dozen comics and the, maybe the star, myself, Bud sometimes. We would just, you know, talk. And so we're at the table with Milton Berle and Milton cracks a joke and I top him. I don't remember the joke. I'll explain to you why I don't remember the joke. And so he says something, and I say something, and I get a much bigger laugh. And Milton Berle turned around and slapped me in the face hard enough to knock my glasses off. Ouch. And everybody at the table, because I was known for my temper, but it was Milton Berle, and we had a show that night. We needed Milton Berle. I almost punched him. I didn't. I just got up, and I said, I'm going to go get some coffee now. I, I walked out, but I topped Milton Berle, which I'm very proud of, but he slapped me in the face. So, yes, so that's one thing. Well, <laughs> not a bad story. A <laughs> it's, it's a good story. It's a good story. If he had just turned around and he was, said... He was also very strange because he was neurotic. That's not even telling stories out of school. But here's what happened. So he that night, same day as the slap in the face, Milton is late. I'm looking... Is Milton, hey guys, bro coming out? What's going on? You don't know. Go get him. Somebody find him. We, we you know, he's he's got like three minutes to so someone runs out, and as they leave, his son, Milton's son, is now leading Milton on the sidewalk to come into the club. And Milton takes the turn to enter the club, the door is open, and there is a figure wrapped in towels, just death towels, around his head. His whole body, completely up to his like waist or his thighs, and out of the face, a cigar. So he's completely in towels and a cigar. And you know, you go, okay, uh, what is going on? The son, he's afraid drafts. So he won't unwrap himself until he gets into the theater. So they had to lead him down the hallway into the showroom or to the door of the showroom, unwrap him, and then he could walk on stage. He was afraid he would be at a draft, catch a cold long before COVID. I went, oh, okay. Okay, I'm glad I didn't punch him. Oh, my God. That's an interesting story. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Oh, man. Wow. He was old and he was Jewish. (laughs) How did, what? So, what? I was going to say, so when did you guys kind of make the business decision to expand, go from, you had the one, then you had the, the Hollywood location, but then you had... Well, that was, yeah, well, that really came from, okay, Mark Anderson was a comic who had a lot of money. He was a decent comic, and he didn't really want to go on the road, and he wanted to open in Pacific Beach. And we had just begun, we had spoken about expanding because we had become popular even before the TV show. But then the TV show really spread out across the country. But Bud was always nervous about risking money and opening new clubs. And Mark Anderson came to Bud, and to me, I guess, 
and asked if he could open another improv. So it was a big conversation, and he opened Pacific Beach. Pacific Beach was okay. It wasn't a big knockout room. And then he wanted to move it to, uh, yeah, it was, I think it was Sandia. And that's how the, that was the first uh, expansion of the improv. But then when the show on the air, stayed on the air, we had other people would approach us. And I don't remember Arizona, you know, Mark Anderson. I, oh, I think Mark Anderson opened in Texas, Arizona. Then other people came and opened in other cities. And until when we sold the whole chain, it was 26 clubs. You know, But we had our ups and downs. We got to 17 and then the recession of the 90s. So we went down to 10. So we lost seven clubs, then we reopened more. But when we when we sold the whole kit and caboodle, it was 26 clubs. So it really happened off of our initial popula- popularity in California. But the real booster came with the TV show. Did the TV show, I assume then because you were blowing up and also the 80s were just huge for comedy, but like, did it keep people at home also? Like, did it have any negative effect on people going no, to see no, live? No. I mean, it, I know really... live comedy is a thousand times better than on TV. Yeah, but no, what happened was in the beginning, we were afraid that it would it would not end us. It would give us publicity that we knew, but it it exploded. It took a, It took a couple of years, but... By year two, or in the beginning of year two, we went from one show a night, seven nights a week, to three shows a night, seven nights a week. You know, wow. it really did expand the... But we weren't that big a room. We're 275, you know. This is not a 1,600-room house, you know. It was a 275. So it really did help our live performances. Got oh, there's there's one thing I wanted to mention, I wanted to ask about is um, when I was watching the Comedy Store documentary, there's a whole segment on the strike that happens at the Comedy Store. You were kind of a big part of leading that. Yes. This is before you bought the improv or bought into the improv. Long before. I didn't even... The Comedy Store strike, I was uh, an actor. I'm still an actor, but... And my wife was a comic. And what happened was uh, the comedy store had, she had expanded from the original room into the main room. She had one in Westwood and she had one in Vegas. And we were, um, oh, I think I was uh, still off the wall. No, no, no. It was after off the wall. And one night, it was New Year's Eve, 1977, maybe. Maybe I'm wrong in that. We're all, it's after the late, late shows, you know, New Year's Eve, and a comic, and we're all sitting around, Tom Dreesen, uh, George Miller at that time. A comic walks over and whispers to Tom, and Tom looks across the table, and he says, you don't have any money? What are you talking about? And then everybody goes, what are you, didn't you work tonight? Didn't you work? The, yeah, but we didn't get paid. You didn't get paid. It's New Year's Eve. So that said everybody, what do you mean? She's not paying even on New Year's Eve? Now, this woman at that point, the improv was a, a small entity. And so they started to talk about, we got, this is crazy. She's making 100000 a week and comics aren't getting paid. So they wanted to do a strike, but no one knew how. But I grew up with, in a union house with union organizers and I said, I, I, I kind of know how to do that. <laughs> and so uh, we, we started the strike and we, it's really complicated how it got there, but we ran, this, we ran a picket line for seven weeks, 24 hours a day, seven days a week for seven weeks. No one ever thought comics could do that, but we did it. And we tried to get 
you know, you the big unions back us, and and eventually uh, we won. But here's how we won: we were limping along. The one union was the Teamsters really backed us, so they wouldn't deliver liquor or food or anything, but they would leave it on the sidewalk. So the dozen or so comics have to come out, pick up the food, and move it inside. But I heard that the SAG uh, uh, at that time it was SAG. It was no, it was AFTRA, American Federation having the national meeting organizers. So I said, you know, if we can get a backing of AFTRA, we could win this thing. Okay, so Tom Dreesen calls them and invites them down. But he invite but they say we also have to have their side on. Okay, nope, no problem. So we show up and three comics of ours and three comics of theirs. And now we are in a room of two hundred and fifty union organizers. I'll repeat that. Two hundred and fifty Union organizers. You flip a coin, comedy store gets to talk first. If Maynard gets on stage and in front of 250 union organizers, he says, before I go into my story of this, I want everyone here to know that we don't consider comics as workers. You could hear, yes, the inhale of 250 organizers. <gasps> I turned to Tom Dries and I said, we just won. Okay. So now we make our speeches. My wife spoke as one of the comics, George Miller, Tom Dreesen. Meeting is over. I'm running down. I go first. I go, let me tell everybody. And Joanne and, and Tom come afterwards. And there's Jay standing in the driveway going into the parking lot behind the comedy store. Mark, Mark, what's, you know, I'll do his voice. Mark, Mark, come in. What went, went, went on? So I go, Jay, you're not going to believe this. And I explain the story. Now, as I'm talking to Jay, my back is to Sunset Boulevard. Jay is looking over my shoulder, and there's a car pulls up, and the motor guns. <laughs> What's going on? Maynard is behind you. Eh, don't worry. Don't worry. Yeah. And he guns the car, and he kind of drives it forward, then lets it roll back, drives it forward, and he steps on the gas and drives at us. He did not want to hit us. I don't want anyone. But I step out of the way, and but when the car passes Jay, hear a loud smack and Jay falls to the sidewalk. Whoa, everybody, the picket line comes around. Are you okay? And Jay is lying on the floor going, eh, I just smacked the side of the car. I'm fine. But they didn't know he was fine. And Biff Maynard, in an absolute panic, ran upstairs to Mitzi. And within 10 minutes, probably less than that, an emissary comes down from the office. Mitzi wants to talk to everybody. So David Letterman, Jay, someone else ran upstairs. And within a half hour, seven week strike. So that, that's how we won. And then the comics got paid. It was an, at one point in the middle, we went to talk to Bud. Because he really couldn't, if we would have struck him, he would have gone out of business. I mean, he, his business teetered. That's really close. And he said, look, guys, you, if you strike me, I'm over. So they came to a decision. We won't strike you. You agree with it to, to do whatever Mitzi agrees to. He said yes. We said yes. And so the improv stayed open. However, though, in that interim, once that had happened, if Maynard, and this is, again, not telling stories out of school, lit a fire in the trash can behind the improv and burnt the improv down. So there was a portion there about three weeks, I guess it was about three weeks, where the improv had no showroom. They had a set up showroom in the bar and flames from the trash can caught the roof of the showroom on fire and burnt down half the building. 
So yeah, I, the, thought, I thought the Knots Landing part was going to be the dramatic part of this. <laughs> no, that that is fact. And then, man, so everybody was panicked that the club wouldn't be open. But a guy named Tom Archibald, who was a, a construction guy, went down, took a look, and he said, "I can set up a showroom in the in the bar area." And that we, you know, so a lot of the guys went and physically rearranged the bar. He had about I don't know, hundred people could sit in the bar, so he was able to stay open. I think I read on the improv website, Robin Williams and Andy Kaufman organized fundraisers for Bud to help get everything going again, too. Oh, yeah. that uh, Yeah, that probably was true. Absolutely. Cool. But that was a good year before I even thought about becoming a partner. Well, you had to go by the improv. I'm sure Mitzi didn't let you back into the comedy store. Oh, no, no, no. There was a, well, that's another. You want to hear another dramatic thing? So in the agreement was there's no retaliation. All the people who struck have to be accepted back into the comedy store. Okay. But Mitzi did not accept any of the leaders in the comedy store back into the comedy store who weren't stars. One of the leaders was a guy named Steve Lebetkin. And Steve Lebetkin had had an affair with Mitzi years before. And they called every week and none of them got on. And one day we're at our house. Steve keeps falling off the couch as a joke. It's a platform, right? What are you doing? What, what is that? Steve Lebetkin left that meeting, went to the comedy store, and jumped off the Hyatt house into the parking lot of the comedy store with a note in his pocket, be fair, Mitzi. Right. And as he left our house, he said, don't worry, everybody. It'll all work out. And he committed suicide. Uh. So that was... Uh, that's horrible. Oh, that's... Uh, uh. See? And you thought I was going to be all fun and games, huh? Uh-huh. I know. Mark's bringing the drama. <laughs> drama. Yes, sir. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, well. All right. Well, that's uh, that's a lot. I mean, that's... I mean, the evening. You, we talked about <laughs> we talked about evening in the improv. But, uh, I looked it up. Uh, 385 episodes. Yeah. That, yeah. That's probably right. Yeah. We were on for 11 years. We were actually on for one year on ABC. ABC didn't think it was popular enough. Kicked us off. We moved over to um, A&E, Arts and Entertainment Network. Right, and we right. stayed there for 10 years more. That's a, It's amazing. You have quite a story, Mark. <laughs> I appreciate you sharing a lot of it with me. Well, that was it was fun, you know. Everything but the Steve Lebetkin story is fun. Yes. Yeah. But uh, RIP to Steve. But, you know. It is what uh, it is. Yeah. Uh, well, wait, now we got, we got, I feel like we have a more up story. <laughs> hey, I once tried to hum and tap dance. Is that up and up? Yes. That's amazing. That's amazing. So, oh, no, but it's great. I loved all the stories. I uh, Do you still talk to Henry Winkler? Uh, rarely. Uh, Our paths diverged in the woods. <laughs> <laughs> well, Mark, thank you so much hearing some uh, deep insight into the birth of the improv. And it's a long story, long history. But thank you for inviting me on. It was fun talking to you, and I hope you get a big audience. Thank you. It was fun talking to you too. I'm sure. As soon as I let everyone know <laughs> that, th- <laughs> that the star, the, the thank clock. God, that the star, thank God, it's Friday is on the podcast. Boom. Oh, are you kidding? Yeah. Are you- Boom. Gotta see it. We gotta see it. I'm gonna get into it. I'm gonna get into a disco. I'm gonna get into a disco uh fan uh, Facebook group and uh it's gonna explode. Boom. That's right. We're gonna we're gonna go back and you can put a a, like a a mirror ball over your desk here. (laughs) It'll be perfect. (laughs) Jeff, it was nice. 
Bye. I'm leaving now. Good. Bye, 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 bye. (laughs) 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 All right. How amazing was Mark and all those amazing stories, the history of the improv, lots of great Lots of great stories there. Of course, the one sad one about Steve leaping to his death. If anyone out there ever needs help, there's now a national suicide hotline, 988. Coincidentally, we actually talked about it in the last week's episode with Melissa Rivers, who was instrumental in helping get that nationwide 988 hotline for suicide prevention up and going. That's out there. There's always somebody out there who can help you. You're not alone. 988. Also on the improv front, like I mentioned up front, rest in peace, Bud Friedman passed away after the interview was done. And then also recently, uh, Silver Friedman, also a co-founder of the improv, passed away. A lot of great legacy left behind. All right. Well, with the interview over, I can only mean one thing. That's right. It's time for another trending hashtag from the family of hashtags at hashtag roundup. Download the free hashtag roundup app at the Apple App Store or Google Play Store. It's free. Always free. Follow us on Twitter at hashtag roundup. Tweet along with us and one day one of your tweets may show up on a future episode of Classic Conversations. Fame and fortune await you. All right, this episode's hashtag is hashtag wedding song or band brought to us originally by Musical Hashtags, a weekly game on hashtag roundup, obviously inspired by Mark's memorable role in The Wedding Singer. Hashtag wedding song or band, the ultimate wedding mashup hashtag mashup anything wedding related with a song or a band. Only hilarity is on the other side of that. Am I right? All right. Tweet your own hashtag wedding song or band. Tag me at Jeff Dwoskin Show. I'll show you some Twitter love. In the meantime, here's some hashtag wedding song or band tweets for inspiration. Purple train, purple train. For the guys, the train is that long dress thing. Anyway, red, red wedding. All right. These are awesome hashtag wedding song or band tweets. Carry on your wayward son. These boots are brides made for walking, and that's just what they'll do. And one of these days, these bridesmaids are gonna walk all over you. Otis Wedding, he made some amazing songs. Ticket to Bride, I've got a ticket to Bride. Hashtag wedding song or band tweets. Does it get any better? Back on the ball and chain gang. <laughs> Bride better have my money. Very white wedding. Best man, I feel like a woman. The Shania Twain classic. Iron Bride's Maiden. Born to Runaway Bride. My Toast Will Go On from Titanic. I fought the mother-in-law. The mother-in-law won. Ooh, a tragic story and a hashtag wedding song or band tweet. Boom, there you have it. All retweeted at Jeff DeWaskin Show. Show them some Twitter love. In the meantime, the hashtag's over. The interview's over. It can only mean one thing. Episode 190 has come to a close. I want to thank my special guest, Mark Leno. And of course, I want to thank all of you for coming back week after week. It means the world to me. And I'll see you next time. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Classic Conversations. If you like what you heard, don't be shy and give us a follow on your favorite podcast app. Also, why not go ahead and tell all your friends about the show? You strike us as the kind of person that people listen to. Thanks in advance for spreading the word, and we'll catch you next time on Classic Conversations. Classic Conversations.